amen? Amen. Amen. Scripture reading this morning. Well, keep your Bibles open to Esther chapter 1. It was not planned this way that the Queen of England would pass away uh, the week that we begin a study on another queen, Queen Esther. Uh, Can you imagine over 70 years of leadership, stability? Well, they had prime ministers too, so. But fascinating, isn't it? In the year 2021, in the summer and, and into the fall, we looked at Ezra and Nehemiah, and we thought of that category as a remnant returning to the land, a remnant rebuilding. I want to come back uh, just a little bit further down the road historically about, about uh, well, about in between chapter 6 and 7 of Ezra, Esther happens. So we're about... Um, We'll call this one a remnant resisting, or maybe more softly, a remnant residing. This is about 
people that are still in the land as exiles. How do they live while in exile? They're in the world, but not of it. It says Jesus would teach his disciples in John 17, verse 15. I don't ask, Father, that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. This story of Esther is about that. And not only is Esther, but Daniel. Uh, Daniel was also one of those exilic. In fact, he entered exile probably about the year 640 uh, B.C. Some, is that right? 646? I'd have to look at my notes again. Six, or is it 604? It's six something. 606. Okay, about 605, 604. Daniel went into captivity. He's there... Um, probably about 70-plus years, and now 51 years after the passing of Daniel is Esther. And Daniel had served Nebuchadnezzar, who then was usurped by Darius the Mede, who had a son whose name was Xerxes, or also known as Ahasuerus. This Ahasuerus, this is the, the son of Darius, whom David served. This is Esther, about 51 years or so uh, down the road. Esther's a feminine parallel to that Daniel. But the question that we arise uh, and confront here is, where is God? And maybe you know this from trivia and so forth, but God is not mentioned by name, by any direct word in the entire book of Esther. So much so that even Luther, he just wanted to kick it out of the Bible altogether. God wasn't, he thought it was just too, too pagan. Well, uh, cooler, wiser heads um, won, up, won that battle. But Esther is this story answering where is God? And the, and the people of God are asking this question. And they ask this one regularly. Psalm 10, verse 1, says, Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? We, we may ask that very same question sometimes. And, and the book of Esther seeks to give us uh, a measure of answer, and it ought to be, I suppose, satisfactory to us. Esther opens in the days of Ahasuerus. Yes, this Xerxes, this event between Isaiah Chapter six and, or, yeah, Ezra, chapter 6 and 7. Some of the exiles have gone back to the land uh, with Ezra, and they're facing some, some great challenges. Two, two fellows there, Sanballat, uh, uh, for example, is they're trying to put real great pressure on Israel to stop building the temple, stop building the walls of Jerusalem. And now, in the the empire itself in the capital city, the citadel of Susa, they're going to face the reality of genocide by a fellow named Haman. Where is God? And, and here is where we get an example of how do we live in the midst of that kind of suffering, that kind of persecution. But again, God isn't mentioned. But we, we're not driven by fortune, luck, fate, or karma. We are forever 
led by the hand of God. And Charles Spurgeon summarized it something like this. He says, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. I think someone penned a song after that kind of phrase. Now, we could talk about, you know, I could, I could say, well, my coming to this, this sermon series, the, the week that the Queen of England passed away is fortuitous. But the root of that is fortune. Or you say, well, it's coincidental. Well, okay. But if we're not driven by luck, fortune, karma, what is it? Well, maybe you want to hold on to the word coincidence. If so, then define it the way Frederick Buchner would do it. Co- coincidences are God's way of getting our attention. Coincidences are God's way of getting our attention. Now, we can look to Esther and, and find some kind of love story, as the movies tend to do. But the real love story isn't so much between Ahasuerus and Esther, so much as it is maybe between Mordecai and Esther as relatives, cousins, and a, a unique relationship that's there. But even, even more important is that relationship a love relationship that God has with his people. He is there. And he is, he is behind all the events, orchestrating, directing, providing. And that's the doctrine we come up against in Esther, the doctrine of providence. Providence. Now, we can read this in a matter of minutes, and, and Hollywood will do it for us in two hours or less. But this, this drama took about 10 years. Events of Esther play out a prolonged, you know, kind of excruciating experience of 10 years. It's difficult for us to identify with a 10-minute saint, but a 10-year elongated plowing through a spiritual formation, one degree of glory to another. That one may be Maybe we can identify with this. But this providence of God meets, meets up against what the pride of man. And here's, here's a, a picture of the, the empire of that day. I hope you can see enough of it. Uh, I tried to get Italy in here to so give you some perspective. Uh, down here is, is Arabia. Right in here, this square in the middle... That's the citadel of Susa. Down over here is Persepolis, the capital of Persia. And over here is Jerusalem. Here the Mediterranean, the Gulf. And, uh, and here is Memphis. No, not Tennessee, Egypt. All right? Look at, look at how far it reaches up into, even into Macedonia area, reaching into Greece, North Africa, and quite far to the east, all the way to the Indus Valley. So we read the word India in here, but it's really modern-day Pakistan. It reaches all the way to that Indus Valley. It's, it's enormous, this, this empire, and it's far-reaching. Now, um, if, if you ruled over that much geography, imagine you'd feel quite accomplished. But it's not enough. Uh, Rockefeller was quoted of saying, you know, 
uh, he was asked, how many dollars are enough? And he said, infamously, just one more. Well, that's about these emperors kind of feel the same way. So Darius had tried to take Greece and failed. Xerxes is going to try to outperform his daddy. And so he's planning to take Greece. And that's what's going on about this time when we're reading Esther chapter 1. He has been planning a great military campaign. He's been putting together all of the resources uh, to go and try to conquer Greece. And as part of pumping up the troops and of boosting morale within the people for their support and all that it's going to cost them in taxation and other things and recruits, let's have a party. Let's do a six-month, a 100-day, 80-day celebration of our empire. Patriotism. Oh, today is, is Patriot Day, isn't it? For our own country. Patriotism. And he's, he's trying to well up and gain the, the support and loyalty of all that would follow him and those that would give their lives for him. Now, we, we know that that's not going to work for just a little bit later. The 300 Spartans in Plataea are going to send him and his billion-dollar army back home running, leaving some of those. We read about the golden couches. The, the, the Greeks rode in after the, the Persians left, and they found some of those golden cart, uh, couches. The pride of man. Let's, let's focus this in maybe three scenes. We have one... A degenerate king is where we begin. Verses 1 to 9, and Todd read those for us. A degenerate king. Or we might say the pomposity of a man. Just shorten it to pomp. And it would be a sin of, we might say, avarice. One of those seven deadly sins. Greed. Pomp and circumstance, opulence. You, you read this and, and it's as if an eyewitness is describing the courtroom of the palace. Right? Here's the colors. Here's the fabrics. Here's what the couch looked like. I don't know who it would be. But it says that someone's there on the inside giving us the story, the scoop, the intelligence of this operation. Now, these rulers um, are gathered together at the end of the six-month banquet for a seven-day banquet. So we've already got two feasts in Esther. There's going to be several more throughout its telling. The second feast now is culminating the six-month. It's a seven-day feast for especially the key leaders and the seven princes in particular. And, and, And at this particular feast, the rules are are set aside. Normally, when you sit down at the table of the king, you don't, you don't eat what he doesn't eat. You don't drink what he doesn't drink, not only in its uh, variety, but in its amount. You don't drink more than the king drinks. But this time, the king, you know, again, wanting their loyalties, Sets that rule aside. Drink as much as you would like. Don't let me be the limitation. Go to your heart's desire. 
drink and be merry. Now, this power, this prestige, and these possessions are all Xerxes, all Ahasuerus. And, and he gives no, at this point, no credit to the one who gave them to him, to God. Now, we would have to go through the book of Daniel to see how God sets up kings and takes down kings. He is providential over the affairs of, of the international community. But here is a man with the power, the prestige, the possessions, without acknowledging the Lord from whom they come. And this is his pomp. This is his pride. And pride comes before a fall. The Proverbs says that, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. This is the parable that Jesus told the disciples in Luke chapter 12. Verse 15 and following says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Uh, we could just pause right there and repeat that. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my old barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain, my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, drink, drink, be merry. Drink, be merry. That's what we read in Esther 1, isn't it? But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be now? And Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the nature of the emperor of the king. He's a fool. And Warren Wiersbe kind of summarizes it up this way, and I don't remember get the quote exactly right, but he says, only a poor man uh, has only drink to offer his followers. Only a poor man uh, is limited to six months of showing his vast wealth. Only a poor man gets angry and lets it take control of him. Uh, Ahasuerus is really not all that powerful, really not all that prestigious. And we begin to see chinks in his armor, so to speak. But there is another character that comes in verses 10 to 12, and that will identify as a disobedient queen. And through her disobedience is revealed another uh, sin of the king, his petulance, his anger. Verses 10 to 12 go on. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, uh, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, and Zathar, and Carcass, that is the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Uh, but Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command, uh, delivered by the eunuchs, and at this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. The last and greatest day of the feast, the seventh day. Now, it's interesting to note the number seven throughout this chapter, isn't it? The seventh day, the seven eunuchs, the seven princes, 
there's this, this narrative picture of completion, this narrative picture of perfection, the climax of the height of his pride. And at the very height of his pride, his wife becomes, instead of the crown of his pride, the making of his shame. And this pageant now comes to a crashing and embarrassing end. At least embarrassing, he thinks, to the king. This is like another ruler, isn't it? This whole kind of setup. Like, think of Herod on his birthday. In, in Mark chapter 6, uh, three of the Gospels actually record this, but I want to read Mark chapter 6, uh, verse 21 and following. It's Herod's birthday, and he's giving a banquet for his nobles and the military commanders of the leading men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king says, ask whatever you want. And of course, this will be the, the killing of John the Baptist that she asks for. But you get the same kind of setting. An opulent place, a party going on, and a woman comes in to please the crowds. Now, in this drinking party, they've been drinking, well, quite a long time, but in this particular party, seven days. And it says the king's heart is merry. Now, it could mean that he's simply happy, but usually this context of the word merry means he's under the influence of alcohol. He's drunk. Now, consider this. The text doesn't exactly tell us why the queen uh, defied the king's order. But She'd been drinking for seven days, too. She may not be necessarily in the best spirit. We don't know. The text doesn't say. But based on banquets of the day, we know this, that usually the wives start at the beginning of the party, and once the drinking's gone on for a little while, they decide to vacate the room, and the men are left, and the concubines come in for those kind of dancing things. They've been now the pinnacle of the day, the seventh day, and now he asks for Vashti to come back in. She could be rightly offended that she's been treated lesser than a queen should be treated. Could be. Well, whatever the case, her response uh, of no response really makes the king angry. And I suppose there's two factors that can ruin any kind of relationship and any kind of confidence in leadership, and that would be alcohol and anger. Not that alcohol in and of itself is taboo or wrong or forbidden, but the Bible does say in Ephesians, that's, that's in the New Testament for us, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be controlled by other substances, but be absolutely controlled by the divine presence of God through the Holy Spirit in you, filling you. And of course, for our, our guest today, the, this, this, the epistle goes on to say, as you're filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So one of, one of the uh, manifestations of being filled with the Holy Spirit is healthy language, pure language. That's not coming from the king. In fact, he gets rather demanding, doesn't he? He gets demanding. Now, we talked about alcohol just a bit. Um, what about anger? Well, anger 
it's, it's like an onion in a sense. We find the, the surface issues that cause it or push the button, but after layer after layer after layer before we get to the seed of that onion. And I think uh, one of the biblical counseling books has been quite helpful in this area of anger. It suggests that the seed of anger is really fear. Fear of losing something you believe belongs to you. And it could be a something, like your pocket knife, and someone comes along and, and takes it off the table. And you're, hey, give me that back. Or your, your wife and your children, someone breaks into the house, uh, and they're threatening your wife, you're, you're going to get angry. There's this righteous kind of indignation, which is fine. But oftentimes the anger is more, more internal, like respect. or even time. Respect seems to be the thing that these guys fear most. Fear of loss. But lest we, lest we be too self-righteous in our own anger, we need to be reminded from James chapter 1, verse 19. Know this, brothers, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. That is a general, psychological, spiritual principle. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Okay. Well, fear of loss. And these men, as we will find out in the next uh, few verses, 13 to 22, their fear is a loss of respect. Verse 13, the king said to the wise men, the magi, these who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The, the men next to him being Karshena, Shephar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marcina, and Memekin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has perfor not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memekin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials, all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she didn't come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. Now, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she, so when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all this kingdom, for it is vast, all women will honor their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memekin 
proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Mebekin, uh, the name, uh, his name means something like certain, truth, but it also has another meaning, meaning poor, impoverished. So here you have this opulent king and, and all this pageantry of wise men. And here comes Memekin, who could be known as the poor man, giving advice. There's an irony within the narrative in the story. Here you have a derogatory prince. And this brings out the pertinency of the king. His authoritarianness, his arbitrariness. Now, if you need to legislate your authority, if you need to legislate your leadership for people to follow and honor, you've already lost. You think? Yeah. Well, what we learn in Esther is that this, this is not uh, anywhere condoning ill treatment of women. It, it is not at all presenting in positive light any kind of authoritarianism of men over women. In fact, it shows the worst of it. Now, if you want to lead anywhere, or if you want to lead in your home, you must win their respect, loving her and cherishing her, not exposing her to shame. Cherishing her not as an object to view or a trophy, but a person a person to be praised and with whom to share a life. Well, we could spend a little bit more time on this, but these three characteristics, avarice, anger, and authoritarianism, shall we say, culminate in a DUI. We've been talking about drinking, so we can talk about DUIs, right? Decisions under the influence Decisions under the influence of sin and self-centeredness and self-assertion. One who is ruled by these passions will react compulsively and short-sightedly. And this person is in the moment only. Right here, right now. They got to have it all, and they got to have it all now. There is little consideration for the future. There is no desire to wait. And we ought to feel sorry for people that have no hope. That's, that's what's revealed. No hope. Perhaps that's the true nature of a person such as this king. Hopeless, fearful, and loveless. But the one, the one who rests in the providences of God has Faith, hope, and love. Now, our God is not named in this narrative, but yes, he's there. He's a counterpoint to what we've just read and seen. He is, in fact, a devoted Lord who is providential and who is affectionate. There is a better wealth. There is a better king. There is a better banquet. 
And it's all in Jesus. When the people of God are disappointed with the leaders of the day, the hope is that in the future, Jesus will return for His bride and dwell with her and banquet with her. Revelation chapter 5, verse 12, here is a better rich richness and wealth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And here is the supper that is to be desired in John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the seventh day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture says, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. Is that not a better way to drink? Is that not a better way to have a merry heart, to take in of the Lord Jesus Christ, totally devoted to His people, the providence of God ordering the circumstances and pouring out His love and affection for His people. And with the heavenly chorus, Revelation 19, we say, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. The bride hears the voice of the bridegroom and comes ready to meet Him. Now, any other person, any other possession that you worship other than King Jesus is nothing more than a tyrant just like Ahasuerus in your life. It is only King Jesus who is His devoted Lord, providentially loving, caring, and affectionate towards you in a divine love. And He comes by the Spirit of the Gospel and the Spirit of holiness and calls you to His banqueting table. His invitation is to you now to come be part of His bride. Why? Why would you refuse a good king? Friend, don't refuse the invitation of the better, the best, the eternal, immortal, invisible, all-wise King of kings and Lord of lords. A better wealth, a better treasure, a better banquet a better king. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do come to you in the name of Jesus, the name above all names, the name by which we must be saved. There is no other name given to us under heaven on earth. God of all mercies, we, we come as poor stewards, poor servants, but we come and bring our humble and heartfelt thanks for all of your goodness, all of your loving kindness, your faithfulness to your people to keep your promises. And not only to us, but in your common graces to, to all creation, you preserve it. And you give blessings of this life, of rain and harvest, of sun and moon and stars, of a home, of clothing, shelter, food, but above all these things, we thank you for your precious love in the offer of redemption through our Lord Jesus Christ.
We thank you for these means of grace. We thank you for the hope of glory. And in this life, we ask that you would give us a sense of your mercies, that our hearts would be truly thankful. We would show forth your praises, not only with our lips, but with our lives. We would give up ourselves to your service and walk before you in holiness and righteousness all of our days. But we know, God, and we have no power in of ourselves to help ourselves. So keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls that we would be defended and protected from all adversaries. That you would protect us and guard us until the day of Christ, body, soul, and spirit. Guard us from evil thoughts that would assault and hurt the soul. Lord, grant us your help. But when help seems to be delayed, give us patience. May we not be dictatorial to you about either time or measure, but may we wait upon you, wait upon the Lord, for He will deliver you. That we would abide in your own good time, for you have pleasure in those that fear you and put your trust in your mercy. We call upon you for your mercy for our brothers and sisters within our body and around the world. We're grateful for assembling us together here. We pray for our brothers and sisters who ministered to us this day in the chorale. We pray your blessing upon not only their rehearsal, but upon their journey back to campus today, their ministry in the months to come. Give Mr. Chin the fullness of your spirit and all wisdom to lead and direct. Our sympathies continue to go out to the several families in recent months and days who have lost a loved one. Our hearts go out to, to even the family of Eliza Fletcher who, whose service was this last week as well. There are these dark things that happen, travesties that happen, yes, even, even to your people. God, we ask that in the midst of all this, you would demonstrate your goodness and your grace, that you would show light in the darkness, you would show life in the midst of death. You would bring comfort and compassion to these, your people, and you would draw others to your saving mercy. In this world, there are wars and rumors of wars. There's feasts in some places and famines in others. We ask for justice to be accomplished. We pray for judicial decisions to be made within our own court system. We ask for your providence in the elections coming this fall. We ask that you would stop the the unreasonable taking of life in these shootings that are rampant. Stop them, we ask. Even this day as we remember the great terrorist attack of 21 years ago. And then a battle that was supposed to ensue against powers of evil and darkness. Well, Lord, it's not just over there. But we thank you that over these couple of centuries, 
Indeed, you have preserved a people here in this place, in this country. And from this foothold, many have gone forth with the gospel of Jesus Christ in missional efforts around the world. And so for that reason, if for no other reason, we thank you for this Patriot Day to remember the freedoms, the liberties we have that allow us to actually live as citizens of a greater kingdom. But now we would also consider those who go out from among us uh, and serve in various capacities around the world, advancing the cause of Jesus Christ. Today we would bring the Verklers to you and we thank you for the opportunities they have of, of relationship and of evangelism in Ottawa. And we pray that you bring fruitfulness to their work. We thank you for preserving Michelle uh, through a particular surgery. We pray that you'll provide for Titus as he anticipates another. God, give supply to their needs. We're reminded of our brother uh, Keith Jones and uh, the great church planting effort that they have in Italy. We ask, Lord, you would provide uh, a building for them. You would provide the funds uh, in order for them to purchase this building that's been presented to them. Perhaps even we might be a part. Lord, we thank you for your preservation of our ministries here. We give you thanks for a new season, the inauguration day of, of Bible fellowships and Sunday school and small groups and Bible studies, ministries of mercy and outreach to our neighborhood. God, may they increase, may they multiply. May there be manifold fruitfulness. May men and women and boys and girls come to know Jesus as their Savior. Father, we thank you that we can hold up one another in love and good works. May we serve one another faithfully, and even now we intercede uh, for those that need your touch and your, your healing. Those that are to embark upon surgery in days ahead, we ask your provision in every way for good outcomes. We pray for those that are in the physician's care currently and ask for restoration and healing. We especially pray for our sister Sarah and ask that you would continue to bring healing uh, after this surgery. We pray that you would bring a mending to the tear. Uh, we pray that you would ease the pain we pray you would remove the headaches. We pray you would give her equilibrium and strength to be upright. We do pray, Lord, that you would bring measures of healing that they indeed could return the end of this week to their family, their home. For them also, we pray. We pray for the one that is battling another form of chicken pox, and we pray that you would bring ease and comfort. Bless the whole family, God, and move them forward in your grace and mercy. May we all indeed, Lord, be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and receive from your hand all that you have for us. We ask these things and so much more of our mind and heart. In Jesus' precious name, amen.